we are actually concluding this series that we're going to, which is called Shift. And so for the past several weeks, we have been talking about the mindset of the church and even as individuals, things in, in our lives that we might need to shift in order to be the people that God calls us to be as individuals, but collectively as a church. We've talked about shifting our attitudes, maybe shifting into action, even shifting our priorities. But the one that I want us to talk about this morning, it may be the most important of all of them. This morning, we are going to talk about a paradigm shift or shifting our paradigm. Now, some of you may not know what it means to have a paradigm shift, and I haven't asked permission, but I'm going to do it anyway, only because you told me to do this. But as the worship team was here, and then they, see, they get to see the, the title and stuff like that, and one person on the worship team actually said, what is a, a paradigm? And I said, well, everyone knows it's just two dimes. <laughs> a paradigm, right? A paradigm, that's what it is. Okay, so paradigm. It's a really kind of weird-looking word, but it's really fairly simple when you think about it. A paradigm is simply a specific way at looking at the world. It's a, a set of presumptions or laws or theories or philosophies that help to shape your understanding of the world. The world is round. Some will still argue that even today and stuff, but the world is round. And it spins on its axis every 24 hours it revolves around the sun once every 365 and one quarter days. That's why we have a leap year, because we have to somehow account for that. This year happens to be a leap year, so you get February 29th. Okay, the moon, it revolves around the earth every 28 days. And you put all of that information, all of those facts together, and they form your paradigm for your understanding of time, of seasons, of gravity, the oceans, hundreds of other things in life that you probably don't really even think about because your paradigm is stable. It's formed. Now, if somehow we, somebody came along and said, hey, the earth is flat and they could prove it, then your whole paradigm would have to shift. What would happen if your paradigm have to shift. When everything that you thought you knew, it was wrong. Well, there is a great scene in the 1993 movie called Jurassic Park. World-class paleontologist, his name is Alan Grant, and he has devoted his entire life to studying dinosaurs. And he suddenly comes face to face with real, live, prehistoric creatures. Let's watch, see what happens. Alan, this species of veriformin's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a month, this thing. What?
It's a dinosaur. Uh-huh. <laughs> you did. You crazy son of a bitch, you did. The T-Rex is 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Oh. Put your, put your <laughs> head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. smiling about that, I can see. It's one thing to piece together these images of dinosaurs by picking through fossils and bones and, and kind of even using some of your creative to see what the dinosaur looks like. But when you encounter, when he encountered an actual living, breathing dinosaur, his paradigm, the whole thing shifted. Do you catch one line? They're moving in herds. They don't move in herds. Everything that he thought he understood about dinosaurs, it shifted, it changed. For many people, spirituality amounts to picking through the artifacts of faith, the things that have survived from long ago and far away. We read the stories in the Bible about people encountering God, having this encounter with God, about hearing his voice, experiencing his awesome and, yes, sometimes his, his terrible power. But what if, what if God showed up in our world today? How would it affect you to have a close encounter with God? A God who isn't simply an illusion or, or some pipe dream, but he, he's real enough to, to see and to hear. How would it affect you to see God for who he really is? Isaiah chapter 6, what we're looking at today, gives us such an encounter. And I'm going to ask if you would please to stand as we read through Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 8. And Isaiah's encounter, his vision with God, and then we'll break it down kind of verse by verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of the voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Thank you. You may be seated and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Now just to, to set the stage for you a little bit, let me take you back in time to the, the kingdom of Judah. 740 B.C. Israel, it is doing well economically. Building projects, they are happening. Business is booming. People are prospering. Militarily, Israel is very strong. But you see, they're also at peace. It's a time of military peace. It's a time of economic prosperity. And so now just imagine. Imagine that one day Isaiah gets up. He gets up in the morning. And he's drinking his coffee. He's eating a little bit of a bagel. And he flips on the CNN, you know, the Canaan News Network. <laughs> and there's breaking news. Da -da 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 -da. King Uzziah has died. Isaiah's mouth, it drops and it hangs wide open. He's in disbelief. You see, King Uzziah, he had ruled for some 52 years. He was one of the better kings of Judah. He did right in the eyes of the Lord. Uzziah, he was credited with all the economic and military success that Israel was enjoying. But now, now the king, he has died. And you see, this brings us to our very first paradigm shift. When we see the world as it really is, and we realize it's maybe not as stable and under control as we may have thought it was. Everything is going along smoothly. You know, life is good. And then the king up and dies. And suddenly our world is thrown into disarray. We go from calmness and peace to chaos and disorder in just a blink, in a snap. One headline, it was enough to rock Isaiah's world. Let's just take out the words, King Uzziah died. And pick something else off of the list, something else that you would like from the bingo card. In the year, go back to 2020, in the year when the pandemic hit and everything drastically changed. In the year of murder hornets or flying snakes or zombie cicadas, all of those have actually happened. How about in the year of AI? And if you've watched the news at all recently, the big thing is AI and voice 
and body. And there's a lot of stuff that is shifting because of AI, artificial intelligence. A little bit later on this year, we're going to be having another election. And it's very possible, in youth we've talked about this, it's very possible that the two candidates from 2024 will be the exact two same candidates from 2020. Yeah, repeat the whole thing all over again. You know, you get COVID coming back. And, and, and just think, you may wake up one morning after the election and realize that the person that you had voted for, for president, did not make it. And you'll be dreading the next four years. And, and what is life going to look like? How is it going to be? Or let's, let's make it a little bit more personal. Bring it here right now. Think about the time in your life when your paradigm shifted. In the week where you finally make your last car payment. When you thought you were in financial good shape. Financially, you're doing good. And then something happens and it's all wiped out. How about when you thought you were getting in a good place in your marriage and then you find out that something has happened and it's completely gone and your paradigm, it shifts. So here's the question for you. When your paradigm shifts, when the world changes, when your foundation is rocked by the latest diagnosis or maybe the latest cutback in your job, the place you work, or the election, is your concept of God big enough to handle it? Many years ago, J.B. Phillips, he wrote a very influential little book. It was entitled, Your God is Too Small. And the title actually says it all. Phillips, he says that there are many men and women today who are living often with inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all. It's not because they are particularly wicked or sinful or as old-fashioned people would say, they are godless. But because they have found with their adult minds a God who is not big enough. Who is not big enough to account for life. Who is not big enough to fit in with their new scientific era who is not big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. Consequently, they're not willing to cooperate with a God who's not big enough. And then Phillips goes and he spends the next 40 pages of the book laying out concepts of God that are too small. How about God as a cosmic policeman who is out there to try to get you? Or the projection of a parent, and we think of God much like we would think of our own parent. I can fall into that one. How about the kindly old man or the, the genie in a bottle? Just rub it and give your request and it's yours. How about the moral perfectionist and do all of you match up to that? Or how about the meek and mild and the pale and pasty Galilean that never has a cross word for anyone? And so let's be honest. Some of us, we still have an image of God that we had from the flannel graphs from years ago in vacation Bible school. And I would agree that when your paradigm of the world, when it shifts, your concept of God, it may be too small to handle that. 
And that's why the next phrase in verse 1 is so important. See, in the midst of all of his discouragement, Isaiah, he, he goes to the temple as usual. But you see, this day it was going to be a little bit different. The priests, they were praying, but Isaiah, he doesn't hear them. The people, they are offering their sacrifices, but Isaiah, he doesn't see them. Because in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And that gets us to our second paradigm shift. That is seeing God for who he really is. And the image and the language that is used here describes God and emphasizes on God, on his majesty, that he is seated there on the throne, his transcendence, that he is high and exalted. The train of his robe, it fills the temple, and the temple, it is filled with smoke. But notice that God himself is not actually described in here. And I think it's because Isaiah doesn't actually have the words that he can use to articulate what it is that he has seen. It's, it's impossible for us humans to, to use any words to truly articulate what God looks like. And what the Lord is showing Isaiah is that he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, he is almighty God with whom no one can compare. And then Isaiah goes in the next two verses, in verses 2 and 3, and he describes these angelic beings that are there. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you might be sitting there going, what in the world are those things? Well, they are six-winged angelic beings that were created by God to serve in his presence. Six-winged servants, if you will. They are arrayed in a position of servants, standing and waiting on a, a seated master. With two wings, they are folded downward. With two, they are covering their faces. And with two, they are flapping and flying. And all three of these words, you know, the covered and the covered and we're flying, they express a continuous action. This scene that you, that you have is one of continual motion at the king's divine bidding. Now they covered their eyes, not their ears. That way their task is to receive what the Lord is to say with them and not for them to look at him. In covering their feet, they disavow any attention in trying to choose their own paths. See, their intent is only to do as the Lord has commanded them to do. The song that they are singing, it is continuous. goes on and on and on. And the theme is the holiness of the Lord. And in his presence, in his glory, in every place on all of the earth. And notice what it is that they are saying to one another. They are saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, ancient Hebrew, they used repetition to express superlatives. To indicate totality. And only here do we find this threefold repetition. And it's not mighty, 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 or loving, loving, loving. It is holy, 
holy, holy. Holiness is supremely the truth about God. His holiness is in and of itself far beyond any human thought, so much so that this super superlative, it had to be invented to somehow try to express God's name is described by this adjective, holy, in the Old Testament, more than it is all other descriptors put together. And when God appeared in the temple, the doorpost and the thresholds, they shook and the temple was filled with smoke and the smoke is used to symbolize the presence of God. And if you find worship boring, then somehow someone is missing something. If we walk out of a worship service and we are the same as when we walked in, then I'm not sure that we have truly worshipped. Because true worship, it will shake your temple and you will know that you have truly worshipped the king. So what is Isaiah's reaction to seeing this king? For seeing God, who he really is, it's found in verse 5. It says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Now Isaiah, he doesn't go and say, Wow, that's, that's really cool, that's really neat. He doesn't say something like, Hey, I should write a worship song about this. He says, uh-oh, woe is me. If you've seen God for who he really is, your first response would be, uh-oh, or woe is me. For if God is truly holy, our efforts to be like him are undone. If God is truly holy, then our trivial idols are revealed to be worth less than nothing. If God is truly holy, the ground has been yanked out from under your feet. And then we are left hanging in the air, completely vulnerable before him. And that gets us to our third paradigm shift, which is seeing ourselves as we really are. And when that happens, there are three things that take place. First is, we are convicted of our sin. And we'll go into this more and more through the repentance series. And what is the natural response when we've seen God? When we are convicted of our sin, it is, woe is me, I am ruined. The closer that I walk with God, the closer I am in step with him, the more quickly I can feel my sin and I realize my sin. And I realize how much I need God and I need forgiveness. Isaiah, he was completely undone, ruined, just like Humpty Dumpty. So what does he do? He confesses. That's the second thing that happens. We confess our sin. Isaiah knew that he was ruined because he says, I am a man of unclean lips. You see, having just heard the golden tones that are coming from those angelic beings, the seraphim, Isaiah knows that his lips, which have been used to praise himself, to put others down, to generally serve his own ends, they could never be used in such a holy service as those seraphim's voices. What's more, he says, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And I think that's a, a sign that you've 
seeing God for who he is, all you can say is, uh-oh, or woe is me. But your heart, it also grieves for those around you. The people that you know who, who haven't seen God. Those who are immersed in their unclean practices or in the unclean culture. There's a story which is much like this in the New Testament. It's a time when Peter meets Jesus. It's found in Luke chapter 5. You see, Peter, he's been out fishing all night long, and they've caught absolutely nothing. And he's making his way into the shore. He's pulled the nets, and they're making his way to the shore. And Jesus is teaching there on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asks Peter, hey, can I borrow your boat for a little bit? And so just imagine Jesus has gotten on the boat and, and Peter pushes out the shore just a little bit. And so Jesus is standing there and he's teaching the people and they're, they're lining the beach there and, and there's a body of water, a moat if you will, to keep Jesus from the crowd and Jesus is teaching all of them. And then after that takes place, Jesus rewards Peter with this miraculous catch of fish. And when Peter sees this, when they're hauling this in, what does he do? He falls down on his knees and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, when we encounter God in all of his holiness, in his majesty, in his power, the proper response is, Whoa, not wow. Then something amazing happens. It's in verses 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, Isaiah, he underestimates the grace of God. God has not given him this vision of allowed him to see this, to somehow annihilate him. He does it, and he brings the fire not to destroy the offending lips. The seraphim, he actually places the coal on Isaiah's unclean lips. You see, when we are convicted of sin, you know, this, this woe is me experience, and we confess our sin, I am a man of unclean lips, then God can cleanse us of all of our sin. God goes and through the seraphim, he touches Isaiah right at the point of his knee. But we cannot enjoy God's cleansing without confession. The New Testament equivalent, many people think, well, the Old Testament was in the New Testament. The New Testament equivalent of the coal from the altar would be the cross of Jesus Christ. Those who have been branded by the cross, those who have been touched by the seraphim's coal. People who, there are some people who come to the cross. They, they have seen God and they're there. They have an uh-oh experience. And they run away. And there are others who come to the cross and they cling to Christ because they know that they are ruined. They know that they are unclean. They are, know that they are in need of help from Christ's cross. It is the only thing that can cleanse us. James chapter, five, uh, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. 
1 John chapter 1 at verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And you know, it would be real easy to, to end the message right here and say, that, that's it. It's nice. You know, see the Lord, when, you, when your world is rocked, when something changes your paradigm and, and you come to church and you see the Lord and, and maybe that helps to make you feel a little bit better. But if that's all we got from this, then you have missed the point and I'm not doing my job, so we're going to go on just a little bit more this morning. When the paradigm changes, our behavior, it must change as well. And that gets us to verse 8. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. See, God, he was able to take a shattered man and send him into ministry. I can relate. God was able to take a sinful man and turn him into a prophet. God took a man with a dirty mouth and made him his spokesman. See, this is the moment, this is a turning point for Isaiah. From this point forward, he was an unstoppable force for God. And his job, it wasn't easy when you think about it. He had to go to a people whose hearts were hard. People who didn't want to see God, they didn't want to hear what God had to say to them. And yet day after day, month after month, year after year, Isaiah hung in with his calling, with his mission. But why would he do that? Because a vision of God, it leads to a mission for God. That would be true of Israel. God brings this terrifying vision into Isaiah's life in order that having seen that vision and having seen the truth of God and of himself and then having received this gracious provision of cleansing fire from God, he would be sent into the world. A vision of God. It leads to a mission for God. And I want to share as we wrap up one more paradigm shift. A few years ago, there was an article about the hidden messages in these well-designed logos. And maybe you've looked at them. You know, Baskin-Robbins, if, if you ever look at the logo of Baskin-Robbins, it's a B and an R. But hidden within that is a three and a one. Because Baskin-Robbins is known for 31 flavors. And so next time you drive by Baskin-Robbins, you're going to be looking and going, do I see it? And stuff like that. But the one I really want to talk about with you is this one. It is a logo for FedEx. James, you are welcome, and he's not even here. He's actually flying for FedEx right now. He is on his way to work. There's a FedEx logo. Can you see it? I don't mean the logo. I mean the arrow. Okay, if you go where the E is and you go where the X is, there's an arrow right between the E and the X. You see it? And the arrow is pointing that way. And now that you have seen it, hi, Megan. Now that you have seen it, you will never unsee it. Every time you look at FedEx, one of their trucks that go by or, or something like that, you will see that arrow. See, FedEx has learned how to send well. Every day, FedEx, they send over 4 million packages to valued customers. I, I, I looked this up and I've been, I've been frantically trying to find some information. Get this. FedEx's delivery routes cover every single U.S. street. They service more than 220 countries. 
In order to send well, FedEx has over 529,000 employees, 675 aircrafts. They have 86,000 different ground transportation vehicles. They have some 51,855 locations around. And it's a bit mysterious, but somehow FedEx, there are other companies that do this as well, you know, and stuff. But FedEx has found a way to take a customer's package and you can give it to them. And overnight, it will appear at the other place. If FedEx knows how to do anything, they know how to send well. That's what the arrow is telling you, to send out. Our, cheat, our, our church needs to learn how to send well. Now, God, he may not be all too concerned about packages being delivered on time, but the scripture makes it very clear that God desires that all people receive the message of salvation and they come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God, he operates with a very deep conviction that everyone should have the ability to send and to receive eternal hope. And what is God's distribution plan? Us. It's you, it's me, it's people who are following after Jesus. We are his plan. People who are willing to respond to God's call. Here I am. Send me. It may be across the street, it may be across the hall, it may be at work, it may be down the street, it may be somewhere halfway around the world. The question is, are you willing to say, here I am, send me.